It's, there's nothing like being appreciated on command. So <laughs> if you don't know who I am, apparently I'm the favorite son. So um, that's, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Pastor Ron. And for pronouncing my name the way you have now, twice, um, Leonor, that sounds, that sounds like my real name, you know? All this Leonor thing people say here, so thank you very much. Um, this series is after, as you already know. What happens after the resurrection? And today we're going to look at an encounter that Jesus has recorded in the Gospel of John, John 21. So let's begin. Our scene is set on Lake Galilee. It's dark. It's after the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to give you a little tip right now that maybe the 9 o'clock service did not pick up. This sunrise video is 30 minutes long, so if I go long, you know the sunrise will end and it will go to black screen. So this sermon's 30 minutes long, exactly. I've just used 20 minutes or 20 seconds explaining that to you. <laughs> Here, here's a scene that John paints for us. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, I like to call him Tom Diddy or DJ Diddy, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the son of, sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. So John doesn't even bother to tell us who the other two disciples were. He just says, two other guys. So imagine being those two other guys. Probably not super happy about how they got skipped that way. Peter says, I'm going out to fish. He told them, we'll go with you, they said. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. If you know the story of the calling of the disciples, Luke 5 tells us, it's a very similar scene. The disciples go out, they've been out all night, they didn't catch anything. But one important piece here is that this is, the, this is a pivot moment for them. What hangs in the balance is history itself. Something dramatic could happen if they had stayed in Jerusalem and continued with the ministry that Jesus called them to. What do they do when the resurrection happens? These disciples are 80 miles away from Jerusalem, away from the heart of the action. They've run away to what's familiar to them, fishing. They are checked out emotionally, psychologically, they are gone from where they're supposed to be. And this is something that I think a lot of us probably do when something dramatic happens, when we're disappointed, things don't turn out our way. When we're discouraged, we turn to things that are familiar to us, not the things that Jesus calls us to. This is exactly the scene Jesus called them out of. They were fishing on a lake. Three years ago, Jesus came by and said, I'm going to teach you to do something more significant than this. And now... Having been through this trauma of the crucifixion, they are running away back to what, what Jesus called them out of. So this is where Jesus finds them right now. And I loved it. I love the next, the next verse. It says, early in the morning, they, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Why is that? Was it because it was dark? Or was it because, as Mark Twain puts it, I love, I love this, you can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus, or you can't depend on your eyes when your faith is out of focus. They were so shaken by what had happened, their faith was out of focus, they couldn't recognize who was calling them from the shore again. I imagine maybe what Jesus is feeling. He's standing on the shore, 
and he's looking at his disciples, and he may have been thinking, if it was me, if I, if it, he may have been thinking, really? <laughs> You're the team, three years training you, spending time with you, preparing you for what comes next? You're the team, the, the seven of you or the 11 of you are gonna spread the gospel throughout the world? You're out here fishing in the middle of the night, really? Is that what Jesus was thinking? Well, you know what, in my study and preparation for this, I found what Jesus actually said, which reveals what he's thinking, which is amazing. And I know some of you are thinking, the beauty in this passage is the, that examination of Peter with those three questions that are coming, but hold on. I, I found something that is equally as amazing and beautiful, and I wanna show you. Jesus says, friends, have you any fish? Friends is possibly the weakest rendering of the Greek word that John uses here. Now, I know I'm probably saying that about scholars who spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to, how to connect the original Greek to the word we're using now, but, but really, I did my deep dive, and here's what I found. That this word, paideon, I hope you remember it after today, the ways that it's used in the Bible are the following. Children, little ones, always an affectionate, familiar term. So Jesus could have said from the shore, dudes, get out of the boat, come up here, line up. Peter, I know you're in there. Stand right here. I'm going to go with you last because I got some things to say to you. Really? Dudes, really? But instead he goes with children, paideon, an affectionate family term, a term that says we're still in relationship. I love you, you're mine, we're involved, we're together. I know you're scared, I know you're confused, I know you're feeling terrible what you did in that courtyard, Peter. I know that, and you know what? I still claim you, you're mine, paideon, always. That's the only way this word can be used, as a term of relationship and a term of affection. Do you have any fish? Children, paideon, children. Do you have any fish? You have to know, we have to know who we are. By the grace of God, we're always God's children, always. Always, always, always. No matter how far you've gone from Jerusalem, 80 miles out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, hiding out in your boat, Jesus comes out looking for them and shouts from the shore, Paideon, do you have any fish? No, they answered. Um, he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Same scene that happened in Luke 5 in the calling. Same thing. The net was so full they could barely haul it in. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, and by the way, John loves calling himself the disciple that Jesus loved. So we know John thinks for reminding us. Disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it up and jumped into the water. So this gives you an idea, like a picture of the state of mind of Peter. He does something that doesn't make sense. I mean, he puts the heavy coat that's going to get very waterlogged on to swim what we'll know now in a minute is 100 yards to shore. Uh, this, this gives us insight into what he's going through. He's in turmoil. It's Jesus, let me put my heavy coat on so I can swim 100 yards to the shore and maybe sink and die swimming there. <laughs> the other disciples followed in the boat because they're smart. <laughs> they're not going to jump in the water. 
towing the net full of fish. They're not going to let that net full of fish go because they think, they still think they're fishermen. They don't know that they are the disciples of Jesus. For they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, why do I, why do I pause and say a fire of burning coals so slow? Because, man, it, again, in studying for, this, for this, this moment with you, something stood out so dramatically. John uses fire of burning coal twice in his gospel. You know what the other one is? The, the exact same words, it was the fire of burning coals that Peter was warming himself by in the courtyard outside of Caiaphas, the high priest of Jerusalem. When he approaches that fire of burning coal, the, the fire of burning coal illuminates his face, it exposes him, and people who are watching him go, oh, you're one of the, you're one of the people. No, I'm not. And that fire burning coal, this is, this is Jesus taking him back to the scene of the betrayal. It's, it's, not, it's not by accident that John tells us it's the same kind of fire. The first fire exposes Peter's identity. You, you're the second time. You're one of those people. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Third time, you're one of those people. And then he curses an expletive. I wonder which one he used. <laughs> Let's not look in the Greek to see how that translates to now. Not necessary. He just curses so that they know I'm not. And what a horrendous thing to do to somebody who you just promised a few hours ago you would defend to the death. And now he's back next to another fire of burning coals. And this one is going to do something different to Peter. It's not going to expose him for the, the betrayer that he is. This one is going to heal him. It's going to restore him. So Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. And, and as I read this this week, I thought, why does Jesus need their fish? He's Jesus. Matter of fact, he's already got fish on the fire. What need does Jesus have of, this, of, of their fish? And then I realized that Jesus does not need their fish, but he wants their fish. Because we bring something. And Jesus wants what we bring. We bring our attention and our focus and our talents and our devotion and our love. And Jesus wants that. And God, God has always wanted that through all of God's history with humanity. God did not need us, but God wanted us. And isn't that the point of our relationship with him? That we're wanted. We're not needed, but we're wanted. That Jesus wants what they bring. He wants their fish. So he tells them, bring some fish. And here's, I love this. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not, not torn. And if you are a student of Scripture and you're still referencing that scene from Luke 5, you know that in Luke 5, the net ripped because they had too many fish. This time, this could be an entire, an entire other sermon. This time, the net is full of fish, but it doesn't rip. It holds. There's, there's some deep theology here that we don't have time to pause on, but maybe you'll think about it this afternoon later. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples there asked him, who 
are you? They knew it was the Lord. This is the only time Peter has nothing to say. Right? Can you imagine this? Everyone's probably looking at Peter. Peter, you're awfully quiet. Hmm. He's quiet because he knows this entire scene is, I, I'm, it's, it's about me. It's for me, and it's coming, so he's preparing. The other thing I want to, see, here's the, here's the thing I want to know. Jesus came, took bread, and gave it to them, and did the same thing, and did the same with the fish. Here's what I want to know. One, he's giving them breakfast. The first question is, how come we never celebrate the last breakfast? We always celebrate the last supper. <laughs> but I'd like to suggest to you that we should do a last supper, and then the next morning we should do a last breakfast. Roast some fish. Make some delicious bread, naan maybe, I don't know. Maybe we can do sushi in the morning, I don't know. <laughs> if you're not a fish person, I don't know what you eat. If you're not a fish person, but we could do that. But really, the second question I have is, why breakfast, Jesus? Wouldn't it be more appropriate for you to line them up on the beach and say, okay, it's time, it's time to repent. It's time to acknowledge what you've done. And each one of you is going to answer this question, why are you here? Why did you run away? Let's do it. Instead, no, instead, Jesus, Paideon, Jesus brings them together, and he says to them, here, eat. You must be hungry. Have breakfast. Isn't that like Jesus? Haven't we learned that this is always the way of Jesus? Redemption, love. You're still mine. Paideon, you're mine. Come, children. Do you have any fish? Oh. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And you'll hear more about the other encounters that Jesus had in this after series. But for now, let's get to it. Let's get to the examination of Peter, as theologians call it, the great examination of Peter. And in Scripture, if you, if you, if you follow the story in John 21, the chapter, this section of the chapter is labeled, Jesus reinstates Peter. He restores Peter in some translations. How does it happen? Like this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, you know Peter's been waiting for it. He knows. This is the elephant in the room. We're going to name it. Simon, son of John, why did you betray me? I saw you. Did you see me looking at you? No. Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, second time, oh, for, feed my lambs. Second time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Apparently, Jesus has a love language, and it is acts of service, friends. Because do you love me always goes with feed my sheep. Third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Peter had not connected it yet, those three times, the three denials, the three betrayals. But, but he's not connected it yet because do you love me? He said, Lord, oh, you know all things. Now he gets it. You know that I love you. And Jesus' response was, good, you get it, fine, good. All right, we're good then. As long as you remember that you betrayed me. <laughs> he says, no, feed my sheep. That's it. How does the restoration of Peter happen? It happens with three words, three 
phrases Jesus says. Number one, I love you. I love you. Turn to somebody now and say, don't say, love ya, or, yeah, love. Just say, I love you. Say it that way. Yeah, it was awkward, wasn't it? Well, especially if you just invited somebody to church yesterday you're interested in. <laughs> I just thought about that. That, was, that made it awkward for some of you. You know, um, when I was learning English, I would say I love you to people. And I, you know, one day I would just, I don't know, this is the new language. This is how you say I love you. I love you, probably is how it came out. And someone finally pulled me aside and said, hey, uh, Sam, you got to add like, Bro, dude, something at the end of I love you when you're saying it to a guy, otherwise it's awkward. <laughs> so that's how I learned to say, love you, bro. Love you, bro. But I love you to somebody, awkward. Um, it's awkward because it commits us, doesn't it? Saying those words means something. It means that you've changed the relationship. You remember the first time you said I love you to a girl or a guy? Do you remember it? Oh, the, the agony, the period before I love you, the figuring it out, is it the right time? I never had that problem. I always said it. I was always, I was always jump in. I love you. First girl I said it to, I said, I love you. She broke up with me the next day. She was like, ah. <laughs> we weren't there yet, buddy. Second girl I said it to, I prepared. I actually spent, I was going to give her more time. I'm going to give her a couple days. And then I prepped, lick my lips, make sure they're moist, <laughs> so she understands. This is not agape. This is not agape. This is eros, eros love. <laughs> Maybe not eros. I need to look up those meanings again, don't I? Eros, agape, <laughs> phileos, phileo, agape, yeah. And so, so I prepared. I lowered my, you know, you got to lower your, <clears throat> your couple, of, couple of, <clears throat> I love you. And here's what she said. She went, aww. And she patted my cheek like I was a cute little puppy. Oh, and she didn't say I love you back, so it was over. I knew it. It's over. But those words, when we honor them, we, we're making a commitment. When we say it to a loved one, when a parent says it to a child, and you probably are saying to yourself, why? Well, maybe you grew up in your world, you said I love you all the time. In my world, we didn't. Why is that? It's not a cultural thing, but, but you said I love you in different ways. You committed, when you say I love you to a sibling, when you say I love you to an estranged, a person you're estranged from, a friend or a parent, or you're repairing things. And this is what Jesus is doing with Peter here. He says, do you love me? And he gives Peter an opportunity to express it, to say it, because he knows when you say it, you've, You've made a commitment to me. I love the way Alan, Alan Hirsch puts it this way. It is easier to look, to talk about Jesus than to express devotion to him. It's like the difference between talking about a loved one and actually picking up the phone and telling that person you love them. Jesus, we love you, but you actually mean it. Here's the second thing. First, the redemption of Peter happens with that phrase. I love you. And the second one is, feed my sheep. What took Peter three times to understand when Jesus was asking him, 
And it takes us a lifetime is that I love you and feed my sheep are always connected. That we demonstrate our love for Jesus when we're actually taking care of the sheep, tending to the flock, loving people around us. You can't say I love you and behave differently, which is why I never put a sticker on my car that says I love Jesus because I drive on the 91. <laughs> are you with me? <laughs> if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. And finally, Jesus closes with these words, familiar, follow me. The same words he said to Peter three years ago when he first met him, follow me. That's it. I love you. Feed my sheep. And then follow me. And I think what, Peter, what Jesus' message is, Peter, get out of that boat, man. Yeah, I need you. It's daylight. It's daytime. We're no longer in the dark. Get out of that boat and leave this safe harbor of your life except the calling to, to a deep water where the fish are swimming. I need you to follow me. And it's not even like a, hey, follow me and make sure you never betray me again. It's just, just follow me. There's no, there's no mention of the betrayal anymore. Just I love you, feed my sheep, follow me. You know, and I wonder how many of us, even after the resurrection, having celebrated Easter Sunday, a week later, we're still feeling like we're 80 miles away from Jerusalem, swimming in, you know, in, in some boat, fishing in the dark, wondering if this life is really for me, or maybe for some of us, it's that Jesus calls and our focus is so out of whack and our imagination is so lacking that we don't recognize him when he calls. And he stands on the shore and he calls and we go, I don't know who that is. Or maybe for, for some of us it's that we have, we have done some things that are so egregiously gross that we feel like there's no way that my family, my church, my community could ever could ever consider me a part of a contributor to someone that can actually be in this community fully invested. And Jesus says, Paideon, Paideon, if you need to hear that today, you're mine. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. I want to say this to you, um, parent, who stresses out about your child who may be a child who's far away from Jerusalem, in the dark, on a boat, a child you pray for constantly. You wonder, Jesus, will my, will my child come back to God? Jesus is standing on the shore of their life every day calling, Paideon. He loves them like you do. Trust that. Trust that today. You keep praying. Um, hey, I'll tell you this story in closing. So um, when I was 10 years old, my dad one day came home and he said, um, something huge is happening in our home in three weeks. Massive. I have invited to lunch, for Sabbath lunch, HMS Richards. Now, this means nothing to many of you. 
We're living in Guatemala, it's in the, in the 1970s. This means nothing to a lot of you, but let me just put it this way. This is like the Adventist Billy Graham. No, I'm not, that, that's it. It's like the Adventist Billy Graham, like the biggest name in Adventism. And my father came and said, he's coming here for lunch. He was so excited. I want to show you. I want to show you a picture of, of um, the same, that's the same day in the morning. That's me, 10-year-old me, HMS Richards. I didn't realize the significance of this until way into my life, by the way, like, like three years ago. <laughs> so, you know, after church, my dad's like, go stand next to him. I'm going to take a picture. I'm like, I don't want to stand next to him, please. So I go stand next to him, and now I understand the significance of that moment. Uh, but this is before lunch where things went south, and I'm going to tell you the story of how that happened. For three weeks, my father prepares. My mom and my dad would have these little drills every night at supper, preparing us for the great meal. Uh, sit up straight. Please do not pick your nose and eat it when he's here. Please, <laughs> little Moses, do not argue with each other. You don't speak English, so do not speak to him. I'll, my dad was like, I'll speak to him, because I speak English, you don't, so just, just, just remain quiet. We're like, great. That's great. My mom practiced the meal. She made it two or three times beforehand mashed potatoes, which we didn't need mashed potatoes, that wasn't a thing, and another brown thing she made from a box, special K box, disgusting thing. <laughs> you know, it was just like this mush. I was like, do people coming to eat have teeth? <laughs> what is happening? And then she practiced the punch. She made this, this, she made this um, passion food punch. It was delicious. I couldn't wait. I was like, oh, if we're having that, great. <clears throat> Sabbath lunch, we're all sitting around. Everyone's like, talking in English, I don't understand English, no, wah, 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 And I'm like, can we just get to the mush before, you know, so I can go out and play with Carlitos and Josue? And um, I'm like, well, while everyone's kind of chit-chatting and the food's still ready on the table, I'm just going to take a big swig of this delicious punch. So I, I put the, a big, massive bunch of, just a, a gallon of punch in my, in my mouth, and then I made a mistake. I looked over at my sister, Saida, who... To this day, just looking at me, she makes his eyes, and I start laughing. To this day. So I'm a, I look at her, and she goes, she does the thing. She goes, nee, nee, nee. And I held it. But I couldn't, because I'm human, and it began as a mist, like a, just a, like a mist. You know when it's 115, and some places have those misters? That's what it was. And then it turned into these big, thick, mucousy droplets <laughs> that flew out in an arch and covered the entire table, all of it. Blah, blah, there it goes. I, I just automatically stood up, blah. I stood up, and I was like, my time here is done. I, <laughs> I walked to my room thinking, well, you know, I'm going as far as I can from this place, like 80 miles from Jerusalem to Lake Galilee. I'm going to hide out somewhere, wait for my execution. And then I, and I wrote my farewell note. I leave my Legos to Carlitos, to Josue. <laughs> and then I just waited. There was no iPad or phones or anything to pass the time before my death. I just waited for a couple of hours. Like, what? Finally, the door opens. My dad walks in. 
with a sandwich in his hand, which apparently is what they all had. And I just waited for him to say, dude, in Spanish, or some other, mira. Mira means you're going to get hurt, man. This is going to hurt. But instead, he said this word. He said, mijo. You live in SoCal. You know what that means. Mijo. Which in Greek translated means paideon. Which means you're mine. We don't have to talk about it. You're mine. I love you. Feed my sheep. Follow me. Thank you, Jesus. What a beautiful encounter that reminds us of your love, your grace. It's infinite. We prepared to sing our, this firm foundation. The foundation is love, and, and we can trust it. And on this day, as we all leave in daylight, not darkness, the sunrise has happened. The resurrection has happened. May we live in the knowledge of deep, safe love following you out of our safe harbors to the life of adventure you call us to. I pray that in your son's name, oh God. Amen.